Hello, and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Neurology. It's April 2022, and I'm Petros Bili. This month, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Eva Feldman, who is Professor of Neurology at the University of Michigan, as well as Director of both the ALS Center of Excellence and the Neuro Network for Emerging Therapies. Dr. Feldman's series on amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, is published in our May issue, which is incidentally our 20th anniversary issue. The series covers new insights on the underlying pathophysiology, along with recent advances in diagnosis and prognosis. So welcome, Dr. Feldman, and thank you for taking the time to join me on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Please can you begin by telling our listeners a bit about what amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is, who is affected, and the challenges faced by patients? Certainly. So amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or we'll call it ALS for sure, is a neurodegenerative disease of motor neurons in the brain and the spinal cord. This neurodegeneration of motor neurons leads to this progressive muscle weakness, which eventually makes the patient unable to walk uh, and to use their arms. Eventually, patients uh, die from respiratory failure. Recently, also, there's a greater recognition of both behavioral and cognitive changes in many ALS patients, making this very complex disease more than just pure motor weakness. A fraction of ALS cases, about maybe 10 to 15%, are also called familial ALS, meaning there's a family history of disease, and we can usually identify a single gene as causative in the disease. And in the remaining approximately 85%, the disease is sporadic, meaning it occurs in individuals that lack a known family history. Therefore, it's usually not always feasible to anticipate who ALS will affect. Now, concerning the challenges ALS patients face, there's really a host of challenges. First, they face a very dire prognosis since from when we diagnose them to their death is anywhere between two to four years. And the diagnostic process itself is usually very stressful and lengthy for patients with a typical median time from their initial onset to a definitive diagnosis of greater than a year. Secondly, as the disease progresses and muscle weakness worsens, ALS patients find it increasingly difficult to perform their activities of daily living. Therefore, they eventually almost always become entirely dependent on caregivers. So that's stressful for both the patient and for the caregivers. And lastly, they experience behavioral changes and cognitive decline. At least 50% of ALS patients we now know do experience these changes. So that both impairs their ability to conduct their daily activities, plus makes it more difficult for the caregivers. So overall, these challenges significantly lower the quality of life for ALS patients, who also therefore suffer from sleep disturbances, anxiety, and depression. That is quite a lot. Given those challenges, what was your vision for this series? Well, our vision for this series was to highlight areas that could improve diagnosis and prognosis for ALS patients. So ALS currently lacks disease-modifying therapies. The only two currently approved drugs really is Elanadarabone, only really marginally improves survival, and possibly only in select patients. So in our first paper, we described the complex genetic architecture of ALS, a deeper understanding of which could maybe facilitate improved ALS diagnosis through genetic testing, as well as leverage uh, genetic therapies. 
And we also uncovered ALS pathophysiology in our first paper, which continues to remain not fully understood, but which could still unlock some potential therapeutic avenues. In our second paper, we presented current diagnostic and prognostic approaches in ALS. Importantly, however, we also discussed the new emerging diagnostic and prognostic methods. Improved diagnostic approaches, which we discussed in the second paper, such as the new Gold Coast criteria, and there are also new novel potential biomarkers, could shorten the time to diagnosis. So if we could shorten the time to diagnosis, we giving the patient a definitive earlier diagnosis, that would give us more time to plan for their care and more time to begin to try select interventions, whether they're for genetic types of ALS or sporadic types of ALS. And then finally, better prognostic tools would include various scoring, staging, and certain predictive models as well as potential biomarkers. And predictive models could help address the patient's concerns about how much time they have left. Every time I diagnose a patient with ALS, that is the first question they ask me. And new scoring and staging platforms can help monitor the disease progression and help us with prognosis. As you briefly mentioned, um, your first paper describes the incredible expansion of our understanding of the genetics and pathophysiology of ALS. Can you tell us a bit more about the linkages between the genetics of ALS and other diseases? Certainly. So, in addition to the monogenetic risk genes that we know uh, cause ALS, such as C9, ORF72, open reading frame 72, the most common, or superoxide dismutase 1. There are um, now new data that show that the ALS genetic architecture is also secondary to polygenic risk. So what do I mean by that? You can have small changes in a single gene known as a single nucleotide polymorphism or SNP. And one small change in one gene really doesn't move the disease or is causative to a disease. But if you have many changes, uh, many of these aberrant variants or changes in many, many genes, then together these changes can affect disease. And that's called polygenic risk. So many small changes in many risk genes. So we now know that the ALS genetic architecture is just not these single genetic mutations, but there also are comprehensive genetic testing that can show not only the single genetic mutations, but also calculate a patient's polygenic risk. So ultimately, I anticipate we'll shift our ALS classification to talking from away from familial or sporadic disease to better understanding if there are single mutations or polygenic risk. Another new development is that several of these ALS monogenic risk genes, such as, let's say, C9ORF72, are also seen in other neurodegenerative diseases, which is extremely interesting. For example, the most common ALS risk gene, the C9ORF72, is also seen in what are called patients with Huntington disease phenocopies. That means 1% of Huntington's disease patients do not have the Huntington mutation, but they actually have the C9 mutation. Very interesting. Another example is 
intermediate ataxin-2 expansions are linked to ALS, while more expansions actually cause spinal cerebellar ataxia-2. And finally, there are mutations to a kinesin molecular motor known as KIF-5, where certain domains are actually linked to ALS, but other domains mutations in other domains would will cause hereditary spastic paraplegia and Charcot-Marie tooth disease. So I think this shows this really complex genotype-phenotype relationship that, occur, that can occur for various ALS genes with other neurodegenerative diseases. Finally, there's also evidence of an aggregation of neuropsychiatric disease, primarily psychosis and suicide in family members of ALS patients. So detailed analysis suggests this clustering occurs through this polygenic inheritance that I just explained. So for example, there was analysis of genetic data sets from the ALS project, MINE-E, the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium. And what they found is there was 14% polygenic risk overlap between ALS and schizophrenia. So, although early evidence is, I find very compelling, further study is still required to clarify all the potential overlaps between ALS and neuropsychiatric disease, but we do, do know they exist. I see, and so, so quite a lot of um, overlap. And, it, and is this new knowledge of genetics likely to translate to the development of genetic therapies in the near future? Definitely, definitely. So there are penetrant, these penetrant pathogenic ALS mutations that I've discussed, such as C9 and uh, SOD1. Um, there are antisense oligonucleotide therapies being developed against these mutations and have been developed. So these antisense oligonucleotides, also known as ASOs, are very short synthetic single-stranded oligonucleotides, which can bind to either pre-mRNA or mRNA, and then thereby reduce protein expression of the specific gene. In ALS, ASOs um, have been targeted and created against C9, SOD1, and two other mutations that I haven't discussed, TARD, BP, and FUS. And several clinical trials actually of ASOs are underway in, in ALS. I think the most highly investigated is the SOD1 targeting uh, ASO Tofersen, which unfortunately failed recently to meet its primary endpoint in a phase three trial. Interestingly, there was a, a decrease in the protein in the SOD1 protein with the use of the ASO, and also a decrease in a ALS biomarker, neurofilament. However, there wasn't a change in function. So what is now going to occur, which I think is an excellent idea, is there's going to be another phase three trial of Tofersen, and it's going to recruit pre-symptomatic carriers of rapidly progressive SOD1 mutations. So before the patient actually shows the disease, they're going to be treated. And this is uh, intrathecal treatment for a two-year period. This trial is following a paradigm of preventative therapy for individuals who carry a single mutation, operating on the premise that earlier treatment will lead to improved outcomes. Now, there's also a phase one clinical trial of an, of an ASO for C9 or of 72. And unfortunately, just last week, this trial was discontinued um, because there was no evidence of any functional improvement. And those detailed data are yet to be released. 
there's also trials of uh, ASOs against ataxin too. So it's a very active area. Now, it's presently, you know, uncertain how successful these therapies will be, but I'm very hopeful, as is the ALS community, that pre-symptomatic treatment of patients with these penetrant mutations could lead to successful treatment uh, in ALS. Yes, that is, um, that is exciting news. I mean, there must have been quite a lot of frustration in the, in the past with this stuff. The, the next question I wanted to ask, it comes up in, in both your papers, is the gene time environment hypothesis. Can you explain what this hypothesis is and what this means for patients? Certainly. So in ALS, as I've I've discussed, there are these highly penetrant mutations, such as, again, C9ORF72 or SOD1. But what's interesting is that patients do not necessarily develop disease. Instead, when you look at patients, it suggests that there's a multi-step process that is required for disease onset. Highly penetrant mutations, such as C9ORF72, require fewer steps, whereas less penetrant mutations require more steps. So this suggests that ALS is a very complex disease caused by an interplay of inherited factors with other steps, which constitute environmental factors. So the gene time environment hypothesis was developed to account for this interaction of genetics with time as a patient ages and the environmental forces in ALS over, again, over time. What we know is that there are certain environmental forces or certain environmental risks that constitute what's known as the ALS exposome. That's environmental toxicants, persistent organic pollutants, pesticides, metals, as well as lifestyle and occupation, production jobs, military service, intensive exercise. These are all ALS risks. So when you take a genetic predisposition, whether it be of a single gene or the polygenic risk that I've discussed previously, and it's superimposed upon increased environmental exposures or environmental risk, lifestyle risk, over time, an individual is more susceptible to develop ALS. So that is the gene time environment hypothesis. What does it mean for patients? Well, if we can, for example, understand better polygenic risk and understand individuals who have high polygenic risk, depending on what their occupation is, we could, for example, do specific protective equipment or gear for those individuals, look at what their environmental risks are and modify their environmental risks as we understand their genetic risks. This all leads to the idea that while we've spent most of the last 30 years looking for ALS treatments, we're now also talking about the fact that ALS prevention should be on our radar screen. Your second paper looks at the clinically relevant developments in the diagnosis and prognosis of ALS. Can you explain how diagnostic criteria for ALS have been simplified? Yes, definitely. So the most widely used current ALS diagnostic criteria are the revised L-Escorial criteria. And these criteria rate the degree of diagnostic certainty by clinical assessment and EMG as possible to probable to definite. And what these criteria have done is confuse patients over time. So if I, as a clinician, tell the patient based on the criteria they have possible ALS, 
they will return home and think maybe they do not have ALS, and it is, and that's actually unlikely or incorrect. And that almost every individual who meets the escorial criteria, whether it be possible or probable, end up having definite ALS. So there are new criteria known as the Gold Coast criteria. They're much simpler, and they based on how a patient presents, based on their symptoms and their signs, they either tell a patient they have ALS or they have a, tell a patient they do not have ALS. So these Gold Coast criteria are simplifying our ability to diagnose and give the patient a clearer message, which is so critical. Uh, so we do anticipate that these new criteria will not only facilitate our diagnostic abilities, but also just dispel this uncertainty and confusion for patients and families. Yes, I can see how that would be um, very useful for patients, especially given how um, you said diagnosis takes quite a long time. Um, as yes, yes um, and this, these new, new diagnostic criteria are very simple. Your paper also focuses on prognosis. Why is an accurate prognosis important for patients and how have prognostic methods improved? As I mentioned previously as an ALS physician, almost the first question a patient asked me is, can you tell me how much time I have left in my life? And because ALS is such a heterogeneous disease, I can't actually usually easily do that. So we state the survival is usually two to four years from diagnosis, but there really is a spectrum of much more rapidly progressive to very slowly progressive disease. I think Stephen Hawking is a very famous example of someone who had very slowly progressive disease. So there are new survival prediction models that can address uh, this question that our ALS patients ask us about how much time they have remaining. And there's a model known as the NCALS model, which was developed to predict survival based on eight clinical predictors, age of onset of the symptoms, how long it took the patient to be diagnosed for ALS, their progression in what's known as the ALS functional rating score, their forced vital capacity, so their breathing abilities, whether it's bulbar onset, and whether they have definite ALS by the l criteria, frontotemporal dementia, and a C9 gene mutation. So this model defines individuals and in or places individuals into five survival groups from very short, short, intermediate, long, and very long. And it's actually very accurate. So, for example, this NCALS model much more accurately predicts the life expectancy of Stephen Hawking, who was told when he was diagnosed he only had a two-year expectancy. So we anticipate that use of this type of survival model or other similar to-be-developed models could really help us personalize prognosis for ALS patients, which is really essential when you deal with a disease that has such great heterogeneity. I see. So, so much better prognosis and diagnosis, hopefully, um, very soon. If we can clearly give the patient the diagnosis early and then also clearly using new staging systems give them their prognosis is going to help them understand their functional status, going to help them make plans and allow us to intervene much earlier in the course of their disease. Um, can you summarize how the progress you have described might allow for clinical development of novel therapeutic strategies, as well as identification of 
modifiable risk factors in the coming years. Definitely. So I'm very excited about being an ALS physician, and we have several avenues moving forward. So as I mentioned, for patients harboring, you know, one single pathogenic mutation, such as SOD1 or C9, genetic therapies, I firmly believe, may be one path forward. And we will anxiously await the clinical trial results in the pre-symptomatic carriers that I discussed. I think disease pathophysiology is also offering multiple possible approaches, particularly for highly recurrent pathways that we see uh, in preclinical models of disease. So for, ex- for instance, immune system dysregulation is a prominent uh, feature in sporadic ALS, and there are multiple immune modulating therapies that are currently in the clinical pipeline. And also, Importantly, we now do our clinical trials differently. Previously, we would try one drug at a time against one placebo at a time. So you would take, for example, 100 patients, 50 would get drug, 50 would get placebo. We now use what is known as a platform design where we will trust three to four drugs at a time against one placebo group. So for example, we'd have 250 patients 50 times four, so would be trying four different drugs, while there would be only one placebo group. And at the end of a six-month period, the placebo group would be able to enter one of the drug arms. So this new trial design will also, I think, facilitate more rapid therapeutic development. Also, the gene time environment hypothesis in ALS suggests that there's possible modifiable environmental risk factors. So if we could eliminate these environmental risk factors, such as by implementing personal protective equipment in certain occupations, uh, decreasing certain lifestyle factors, especially in individuals we know might be at higher risk based on their polygenic risk, we could mitigate ALS risk. And this approach is really aligned with this new recent focus that I mentioned on a preventative approach for ALS that could minimize disease incidence. So we anticipate that advances on multiple fronts will expedite therapeutic development and risk mitigation for ALS. So it's a very important time for both patients and clinicians and their families in the field. Wonderful, and and how interesting. It'll be exciting news um, coming up in the future. That is all we have time for today, then. For our audience, you can read Dr. Feldman's series online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Dr. Feldman, and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With, The Lancet Neurology, wherever you usually get your podcasts.